you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're continuing on in these uh, familiar opening chapters that are sometimes called the infancy narrative. Uh, we've already seen the promise of John the Baptist's birth two weeks ago. We considered the promise of Jesus' birth. And this morning we come to the text where the two expectant mothers, Elizabeth and Mary, meet. Verses 39 to 56 of Luke chapter 1. Verses 39 to 56 of Luke chapter 1. It really is a marvelous moment in redemptive history. The forerunner and the Messiah, both still in the womb, they cross paths. And their mothers have the privilege of giving testimony now to the greatness of God in their midst. So let's listen to God's Word as it narrates for us this wonderful meeting. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm, and He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's take a moment now to pray and ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his words. Pray. Father, we do ask for your help now. We rejoice to know that you are the God who never changes, the God who has helped his people in the past, will be the God who helps his people today and who helps His people every day until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask for Your help now. And we ask with with confidence, God, knowing that You hear us because the Lord Jesus is seated even now at Your right hand, interceding on our behalf. Would You please give us ears, Father, to hear Your Word with faith and to respond to Your Word, Father, with faith and with obedience. Father, please give us discernment. Please keep me from error. Please give Your people grace to hold fast to the things that are true. We do pray, God, that You would magnify Your great name among us even in these few minutes now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a few moments in life where it seems that ordinary words fall short and only a song will suffice to capture what has happened. Have you ever had one of those moments where ordinary words fall short and only a song 
suffices to capture what has happened. I remember the night after our son Sam was born. Laura was still very sick after delivery, and so she was sleeping a bit in the room, and there I was, a 27-year-old father holding my first son, not really sure what I was supposed to do. And so I sang. I sang to him, a mighty fortress is our God. I say that I was singing to Sam. I was probably more singing to myself than I was singing to my son. But the point is, ordinary words failed me. Ordinary words didn't measure up, and there was something about the song, that song in particular, that expressed what was needed to be said at that moment. Have you ever had one of those moments? Ordinary words don't work, and you sing a song. Friends, our passage today describes just one of those moments. Elizabeth and Mary meet, both pregnant with sons whose significance is hard to overstate, and as the two mothers meet, they sing. They sing. Now, Elizabeth's words in our translation are printed simply as prose, but that's probably a mistake. The form in the original has them set off as a short poem. It's a little song, as it were, when Elizabeth talks to Mary. It's a little song. And Mary's words, as you can clearly see, are a song. One of the most beautiful songs in all of the Scripture, the Magnificat. Mary's is a psalm of thanksgiving. But the point that I want us to notice is that as these two mothers come together, they sing. They don't discuss or debate or describe. They sing. Or to say it another way, as the two mothers come together, they use their voices to declare God's praise. And that is the theme of the passage. Brothers and sisters, the theme of this text is the greatness of God. The theme is the greatness of God. You can see this there in the Scriptures. Elizabeth in verse 41 bursts out in praise because she anticipates by the Holy Spirit who has come into her presence. Not just Mary's Son, but also Elizabeth's Lord, the Messiah Himself. And Mary, in verse 46, responds with praise that puts the spotlight not so much on herself, but on the God who is doing great things in and through her. You see, the two mothers, both expectant with significant sons, the two mothers combine to give us an extended exclamation of praise to God. This is one of those moments in redemptive history where ordinary words fall short and a song is best suited to capture what God has done. So as we look now at the details of the passage, you'll notice that Elizabeth's declaration takes the form of a blessing that she pronounces to Mary. You see it there in verse 42. Blessed, she says two times. And Mary, in turn, offers up her song as a way of blessing God's name. So Elizabeth declares a blessing, and Mary, in response, blesses God. If we take those two together then, we can perhaps think of this passage as giving us four blessings. Four blessings with each one focused on God and what He's doing among His people. Let me tell you those in advance. Number one, we find the blessing of believing in God's Word. That's verses 39 to 45. Second, we see the blessing of magnifying God's greatness. That's verses 46 to 49. Third, we're going to see the blessing of receiving God's mercy. Verses 50 to 53. And then finally, the blessing of trusting God's faithfulness. That's verses 54 and 55. So, four blessings flowing through the songs of these two mothers 
with each blessing focusing our attention on the greatness of God. Let's begin then in verses 39 to 45 with the blessing of believing God's Word. Of believing God's Word. Soon after the angel Gabriel's announcement, Mary decides to head for the hills, the Judean hills, that is, where she greets her relative Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. But that's where the significance starts as Elizabeth declares a blessing to Mary that is nothing short of prophetic. This is important, friends. You'll notice in verse 41 that Luke tells us Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is actually a consistent theme across Luke's two books in the Bible, Luke and Acts. It's a consistent theme. When people are, are, when people are filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke's writing, their role is to give us insight into the mind of God. To give us insight into the thinking of God. So how should we view what's happening? Listen to the person who's filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Luke would say. So when Mary arrives and Elizabeth blesses her, what follows is nothing short of prophetic. It begins, however, perhaps surprisingly, not with Elizabeth, but with Elizabeth's son, who is still in the womb. In verse 41, there's something of a prophetic leap. Look at verse 41 again. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Friends, that's no ordinary baby kicking his mother. That's no ordinary leap. John is not yet born, and already he's fulfilling his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. Already John is doing his job. Remember, Gabriel told Elizabeth that John would be filled with the Spirit from the womb. Do you remember that? Now we find that that's true. John's leap is a leap of joy. You see, even before he can speak, John is like a prophet saying, Look, mother, the one who is greater than me is already here. He must increase. I must decrease. John's in the womb already. He's leaping for joy at the Messiah's coming. Next, you'll notice there's a prophetic blessing. It's Elizabeth's turn to speak now, and as she does in verse 41, she pronounces a blessing to Mary, but it's a blessing that transcends Mary as well. Notice Elizabeth's words, verse 41, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now before we get to Elizabeth's blessing, or at least the heart of it, I do want to take just a little side road here on the text, and I want you to catch the complete lack of rivalry in Elizabeth's heart as she greets Mary. The complete lack of rivalry. Through the Holy Spirit's illumination, Elizabeth knows that Mary's son is greater than her son. Elizabeth knows the child in Mary's room is far more significant in redemptive history than her own son. And yet, does Elizabeth posture or pout or complain? No, not in the least. In humility, Elizabeth blesses her relative without a hint of rivalry. Listen, this is a clear reminder, friends, that true spiritual maturity rejoices with those who rejoice, and it does so even when it means that they increase while you decrease. Even when it means that they get more notoriety and you get less. That's spiritual maturity. There can be no rivalry in God's kingdom. And that's what Elizabeth's humility teaches us here quite clearly. She just doesn't care that she's going to have to go lower. She's glad because she knows the Messiah has come. 
but it's the heart of Elizabeth's blessing that demands careful attention. You see it there, verse 41 and 42. Elizabeth pronounces a double blessing, so to speak. Do you see that? Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. It's a double blessing. And friends, the second blessing interprets the first. Why is Mary blessed among women? Because of the child that she carries. That's why. It's the Messiah who is blessed forever. Amen. That bestows blessing on His mother. You see, this is more than a simple blessing. It's a blessing that anticipates. It's a blessing that looks forward to the greatness of the child that Mary bears. You'll notice also Elizabeth's prophetic confession. In verse 43, Elizabeth is rightly stunned at what's happening and she asks a question that captures her amazement. Verse 43, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now remember, brothers and sisters, Elizabeth is a faithful Israelite who is steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. So when she uses the phrase, my Lord, she's likely thinking of passages like Psalm 110, where David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at, your right, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Elizabeth knows the Old Testament, so when she says, my Lord, from the Old Testament perspective, she's using a messianic title. She's using a title that reveals that she knows the Savior has come. This is what you would use to address the Messiah, the long-promised King, who would reign on David's throne. So do you see what this means, friends? Elizabeth, through the Holy Spirit's illumination, recognizes that the Christ has arrived. She confesses that Mary's child is the Deliverer. Now, does Elizabeth know about the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost? No, she doesn't know about all those things yet. That's why Jesus is going to teach for three years to prepare His people to understand what it means that He is the Messiah. She doesn't know all the details yet, but even so, don't overlook the significance of her confession at this point. Her baby leaps in the womb, the Spirit illuminates her mind, and Elizabeth confesses that the Messiah is coming, carried now in Mary's womb. There's one more piece to Elizabeth's outburst, and it's perhaps the most important of all. Notice in verse 45, Elizabeth's prophetic call. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So very simply, friends, why is Mary blessed? Because she believed God's Word. That's why. That's what Elizabeth is saying here. Mary is blessed because she believed God's Word. She believed God's promise would come to pass just as He spoke through the angel Gabriel. And it's here, brothers and sisters, that the connection from Mary to us exists. Mary is giving us a picture of what it means to rightly respond to the Word of God. Of course, Mary's situation is unique in that she alone had the privilege of bearing the Messiah, and that means her specific experience of blessing is certainly unique. But please don't let the uniqueness overshadow the general truth. Blessing and life are found in trusting God's Word. That's why Elizabeth pronounces Mary blessed. That's why Mary is blessed, because she believed what God said. Blessing and life are found in trusting God's Word. In fact, that is Mary's testimony to you and to me, brothers and sisters. The Word of God fulfilled in Mary's life is a reminder to us that His Word will never fail. 
The promise of God fulfilled in Mary is an assurance that all of God's promises will find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's her testimony. She's blessed because she believed God's Word. And so then the question comes to you and me. Won't you trust Him, friends? Everyone, it seems, wants the blessed life, right? Everybody wants blessing. They want to have life, the good life, life everlasting. But so few people seem to know where blessing is found. And I'll just be real frank. So few people often in the church seem to know where the blessing is found. It's found in trusting God's Word and living according to what God has spoken in the Scriptures. So won't you trust Him, friends? That's part of how Mary was blessed. That's the reason why she was blessed. She believed God's Word and her experience now calls each of us to believe God's Word as well. The second blessing of the text shifts from Elizabeth's song to Mary's. And in verses 46-49, to we find the blessing of magnifying God's greatness. The blessing of magnifying God's greatness. As we noted at the outset, Mary's song is one of the more beautiful psalms in the Scriptures. It has a number of parallels with Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is another indication that this is a significant moment in redemptive history. The theme of Mary's song is evident in the very first line. Notice verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. Friends, the idea here is to exalt something, to speak highly of someone. And that's precisely why Mary sings. In her mind, the only response at this point is praise. The only response is to magnify, to lift up who God is and and what He has done. That's why Mary can say that she rejoices in God my Savior. Don't miss that personal pronoun there. She has personally come to see the truth about God, how He keeps His promises, how He draws near to His people, how He delights to save those who trust in Him. Understand, friends, this is not an abstract, cold-hearted reflection on some dry bit of theological truth. This is deeply personal praise. This is deeply personal praise from the heart of a woman who has tasted and seen by faith that the Lord is good. She's magnifying God. The only thing she can think to do is praise. You see, Mary understands what is actually a central truth of the Christian life. I'm so glad we came to this text when we did. Mary understands something that is central to the Christian life. And that's this. That the highest aim in this world, the singular goal in all of life, is the glory of God. Listen friends, it was not the Protestant reformers who made up to the glory of God alone. It's God's people down through the ages. Mary sees it here. She understands that the only, the singular goal, the highest aim of her life is the glory of God. She understands that the entire point of what she is experiencing is so that God would be praised. Friends, that's true of you and me too. Do you know the entire reason God has saved you and me is so that He will be praised? So that His glory will be magnified? He wants the world to know what He's like And the way He shows the world what He's like is by manifesting His power in the lives of His people. We didn't just think this up 500 years ago. From the beginning, the glory glory, glory of God has been our aim. And sees it here in her song. In fact, notice that even as she reflects on her own experience, 
she does so in a very God-centered way. Notice it with me. To begin with, Mary magnifies God's grace. Look at verse 48, where she says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Friends, that phrase, looked on, recalls God's decision to graciously call Mary and use her in His redemptive plan. Remember, it was not Mary who initiated with God. It was God who moved towards Mary. It was God who showed her grace. And as Mary begins her song, that's the first place she goes. She sings because God has shown her grace. The first thing that springs to her mind is the grace of God. Friends, it's a good test of whether or not your theology accords with the Bible. The first thing you think about when you think of God, is it grace? Is it grace? Because that's who God is. That's the first thing that springs to Mary's mind. She magnifies God's grace, but she keeps going. She also magnifies God's power. Look again at verse 48 and on into verse 49, and listen for the note of awesome power. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. So Mary picks up on the note that Elizabeth sang earlier, the note of blessing that's even now connected with her life. But just as before, please catch the reason why Mary will be called blessed. For, or we could say because... He who is mighty has done great things for her. Do you see it, friends? Mary's blessed state is like a mirror that reflects the glory of God. Or to say it another way, when we look at Mary, what should get our attention? The one who is mighty, who is doing great things in and through her. Isn't that such a fitting title for Mary to use to ascribe to God, He who is mighty? I love that title for God. He who is mighty. It's a very fitting title. Think about it. From a human perspective, there's no way that Mary would conceive a child and that child be the Son of God in human flesh. There's just no way for that to happen from our perspective. And yet, God is not bound by the human perspective, is He? I'm going to ask that again. God's not bound by the human perspective, is He? No, He's not. Praise God for that. The fact that He's not bound by the human perspective is the reason why any of us in here are Christians. He does the impossible. He's the mighty one, we could say. The one who's able to do even the impossible. This is what Mary has learned by faith. And this is why she keeps singing. She's magnifying the omnipotent, promise-keeping, never-failing, always-accomplishing power of God Almighty. Finally, Mary also magnifies God's name, His grace, His power, and now God's name. Notice the last phrase in verse 49. And holy is His name, Mary says. You may know that to be holy means to be set apart. means to be completely pure. It's arguably God's preeminent attribute. The one attribute through which all the other attributes take their shape and form. It's why the angels surround His throne day and night, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. It's why we sang that great hymn at the beginning of the service. God is the Holy One. Holy is His name. And yet, Mary's point goes a bit deeper when she declares that God's name is holy. She means that He alone is God. This is a statement of uniqueness or exclusivity 
more than anything else. She's not so much focused on God's moral character as she is focused on His glorious being. That He alone is God. As she reflects on what she's experienced, she cannot help but cry out, You alone are God. You alone are sovereign. You alone are the Holy One. Please don't miss this, friends. The root of Mary's blessedness The root of her blessedness is that she has come to see God better. That she knows God more. That she has deeper insight into the character and glory of God. In our day and age, when people hear about Mary, they want to talk about the virgin conception. They want to talk about her blessed role. But if Mary were here, she would say, I want you to talk about my God. I don't want you to talk about me. I want you to talk about the Lord. I want you to praise the mighty Savior. I think we need to listen to her, friends. We noted it a moment ago, but I want to come back to it here as a point of application and just, and just kind of linger on this for a second. There is a sense in which Mary's song is a picture of the mature Christian life. This is what it looks like to live a God-centered, God-glorifying life. There's a sense in which she's a picture of the mature Christian life. But let, me, let me explain to you what I mean. Mary interprets her experience in relationship to God, not the other way around. It's easy, isn't it? To look at your experience and then work backwards to make some conclusions about God. My prayers have been unanswered, therefore God must not be listening. I cannot seem to find any traction to grow. Therefore, God's Word must not be enough. I don't understand how any of this is going to work out. Therefore, God must have made a mistake. You see, it's, it's easy. It is very easy to look at your own experience and then to work backwards and make conclusions about God. But friends, what Mary is teaching us here is that the Christian life is actually meant to go the other way around. We look first to who God is, and from there we seek to understand our experience. My prayers are unanswered, but since God is good, that must mean that His way of answering is better than what I can conceive of. See, I start with God, and then I interpret my experience. That's what Mary's doing here. That's why she can sing. Listen, it's very important that we remember that these events are taking place in real people's lives, in real time and space. So don't forget that Mary still has no idea how any of this is going to work out. She still has to go tell her husband, yeah, her husband-to-be, I'm pregnant and the baby is the Holy Spirit's. That's terrifying. Right? She still doesn't know how this is going to work out. She doesn't have all the details. But is she in despair? No. Is she afraid? No. Why not? Because she starts with God and who God is And from there, she seeks to understand her own life. And look at the result, friends. Look at the fruit. It is this unspeakably beautiful and moving song of praise to God. I noticed a couple weeks ago in my own life that when I woke up in the morning, I was just instinctively asking myself the question, how am I doing today? Friends, I actually think that might be the wrong question to start the day with. I think the better question would be, who is God today? And then from there, 
What does that mean about me? You see, I, you don't start with your own experience and then work conclusions back to God. You start with God and you work down to your own experience. This is how God receives His glory. This is what it means to live a God-glorifying life. This is where rich songs of praise come from. It's when God's people focus on Him first and then they use their lives to declare His praise and to display His glory. That's number two. The blessing of magnifying God's greatness. Let's keep going in Mary's song where we find the third blessing. Verses 50-53. to The blessing of receiving God's mercy. The blessing of receiving God's mercy. In this section, Mary shifts her focus a little bit. She began by praising God for His work in her life. But now she broadens the scope to praise God for His work among His people. So she's moving from the specific to the general. From the individual to the corporate. You can see the shift there in verse 50. Notice what Mary says. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Friends, to fear God is to acknowledge and submit to His Lordship. To fear God is to believe that He is sovereign. By the way, sovereign is just a fancy way of saying that God is able to do whatever He wants. Right? So to fear God is to believe that He is sovereign and to trust Him with your life. That's been Mary's testimony. She fears the Lord. She submits to His authority. But, this is important, Mary wants us to see how this is true for all of God's people. To know God is to fear God. To submit to His rule and His authority. And when God's people live this way, what do they find? They find that God is merciful. That's Mary's point in verse 50. When God's people fear Him, they find that He is merciful. I think we need to work this out a little bit. This is a significant point in Mary's song. Think about someone who does not fear God. Someone who does not submit to God's lordship. Does that person know the truth of God's mercy? Does that person get to taste the blessing that comes from bowing before God in humble submission? No, they don't. They don't. People who do not fear God do not get to know God's mercy. If you never bow before God, how will you ever find Him to be merciful? You see, the experience of mercy requires the humility of fearing God. We come to know that He's merciful when we bow before Him. That's what verse 50 is driving at. The experience of mercy begins with the willingness to say, you are God and I am not. Your Word rules over me, not the other way around. So you see the connection? Mercy is sweet, friends. It's sweeter than we can even realize. But to whom does God show such mercy? He shows it to those who fear Him. Just as Mary says here in Verse 50. So before we go on, I want to pause here for a minute and say that if you do not know God today through faith in Christ, then verse 50 should get your attention. Verse 50 might be the most important verse for you today. A relationship with God actually begins with what Mary describes right here. It begins with submission to God with the humility to fear God and bow before His Lordship. Friends, the Bible calls that response repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Ultimately, to fear God means that we confess our sin before Him 
And we trust that forgiveness is found only in the Savior whom God has provided. And the Savior is the child that Mary is carrying in her womb. The Savior is the Lord Jesus who lived a sinless life, suffered and died on the cross as the payment for His people's sins, and then rose again on the third day for the salvation of His church. To fear God in the most complete sense then is to submit to God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that Christ alone can save. That's what it means to fear God. That's where mercy is found in submitting to Christ. So if you're here this morning and you know that you need mercy from God, which by the way, every person needs mercy from God. We're all on equal footing before God. We all need mercy. If you're here this morning and you know that you need mercy from God, then won't you listen to God's Word in verse 50 and bow before Christ in faith? Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Fear God and find mercy. His mercy is for those who fear Him. And to fear Him means that we entrust our lives to His Son, the Lord Jesus Himself. So trust Him. Believe. God will save. As we look back to the song and keep going, we find that Mary begins to reflect on what God's mercy will mean for the life of His people. Verses 51 to 53 are again a prophetic anticipation of God's kingdom. Mary is looking ahead to the kingdom of God. You'll notice that Mary speaks in the past tense in these verses. Verses 51 to 53, she shifts to the past tense. Why is that? Well, it's because she has such confidence in God that she can speak of His salvation as being already accomplished. She can speak of His kingdom as having already come. This is not what might happen, but what will happen for those who fear God and trust in His Messiah. Verse 51 makes the connection with salvation very clear. Notice what Mary says, verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, Friends, God doesn't have an arm. God is a spirit and has no body as we do. If you ask our children, who is God? God is a spirit and has no body as we do. So God doesn't have a literal arm. So what's Mary's point? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you'll often hear of God's arm working salvation for His people. It's an image. It's a metaphor. Our call to worship this morning, Psalm 98, 1, is a good example. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked what for Him? Salvation. Worked salvation for Him. So God's arm is a picture of salvation. And that's what Mary celebrates here in her song. Those who fear God come to know that He is mighty to save. But you'll also notice that Mary continues to focus on humility as well. Specifically, she highlights how God delights to overturn the ways of this world by exalting the humble and humbling the proud. You heard it there in verse 51, but it shows up again in verses 52 and 53. Listen for the divine reversal as Mary sings. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Again, Mary's looking ahead to the kingdom of God. From the world's perspective, who would you think gets to go into the kingdom of God? From the world's perspective. Well, it would be the powerful and the mighty and the significant and the rich and the well-to-do. 
in the world's eyes, those are the significant people. Those are the important people. And therefore, they would be the ones that get to go into the kingdom of God. That's what the world would say. And yet, that's not how God works, is it? God's kingdom is upside down, so to speak, compared to the world. In God's kingdom, it's those who fear Him that enjoy His salvation. Those who enter God's kingdom are the humble, the lowly, the ones who recognize their need for a Savior. So you see the point, friends? Mary is not giving us strictly a social commentary as much as she is calling us to the humility of faith. The humility of fearing God and submitting our lives to Him. And so, I'll just come back to that exhortation from a few moments ago. Right now, this morning, is your life marked by the fear of God? Right now, today, is your life marked by the fear of God? I don't mean what happened in the past. That could be good. But the past is the past. I'm talking about today. Is your life marked by the fear of God? Are you submitting your life to His Word and to His authority? Or, does your life even implicitly give the impression that you don't need God? That you're capable of making it on your own? That mercy sounds nice, but you're getting along just fine? Which one is it? And listen, friends, whether or not you fear God really comes down to a a pretty simple calculus in how you're living. Are you submitting to His Word or not? Right? We, we know God's expectation for us through His Word. So is there an area of your life where you know that God's Word is calling you to obedience and yet you're refusing to obey? Is there an aspect of your life where you know God's Word is saying you should turn from that and you're simply ignoring Him? That, that's the question. Those are the kinds of questions that we have to ask when we say, is our, are our lives marked by the fear of God? It comes down to, are we submitting to His Word? in faith, and in obedience. I'll say it again. We all need mercy. Everybody's, everybody's on equal footing before God. We all need mercy. But what we, what we should learn from Mary is that mercy begins with the fear of the Lord. Those who ignore God will not find Him to be merciful on the last day. They'll find Him to be just. And so mercy begins with the humility of faith. And so I just want to put that question before you. Is your life... Is my life marked by the humility of fearing God and submitting to His Lordship that comes to us through His Word? That brings us to the last blessing of the passage, and we'll end with this, the blessing of trusting God's faithfulness. The blessing of trusting God's faithfulness. In some sense, friends, the text ends where it began with an emphasis on God fulfilling His Word. Notice what Mary says here at the end, verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. So clearly, Mary recalls God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Let's put a little plug in here that I always say, if you want to know the New Testament better, you've got to know the Old Testament better first. Right? So Mary is remembering God's promise to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 where the Lord said that He would bless Abraham, and then through Abraham, He would bless all the peoples of the earth. Genesis 12.3. It's that Old Testament promise that Mary is remembering here at the end of her song. And the reference to God helping Israel reveals Mary's hope. 
she believes God is now ready to fulfill that specific promise. That even now, God is preparing to bless His people. The descendants of Abraham. But that's perhaps the most astounding point here, friends. What Mary doesn't yet know is that her child, Jesus, is the promised offspring of Abraham. Mary's child will be the one through whom God's blessing flows out to all the peoples of the earth. So yes, Mary is looking back to the Old Testament and God's promise to Abraham, but her words also point forward to the new covenant reality of the Gospel. And I know someone will say to me, Mary, but Mary doesn't know that the Gospel is coming. Yes, I know, but the Holy Spirit knows and He's illuminating her heart and mind to see. She's looking back to Old Testament promises, but she's also looking forward to this new covenant reality of the Gospel where all of God's promises, including the promise to Abraham, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You see, the coming of Christ is the vindication of God's covenant work. That's really the key here, even if Mary is yet to understand all the details. God intends to honor His Word. God intends to help His people Israel, but He will only do so through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. It's the centrality of Christ that Mary is anticipating here. There's no covenant fulfillment apart from Christ. There is no blessing of Abraham apart from faith in Jesus. None. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Luke's going to connect Luke. Uh, Luke's going to connect Jesus and Abraham more as the gospel progresses. What we need to see here at the end is the emphasis on God's faithfulness. God made a promise to Abraham, and now Mary rejoices that God is fulfilling that promise, and He's doing so through her son. That, that's the final note in Mary's song. That's the final note here. It's this note that praises God as the faithful one, the one who keeps His word to the end. And so, as we conclude our consideration of these wonderfully rich songs... We want to end on that same note as well. We want to end with a call to faith. A call to entrust our lives to the God who keeps His promises. God's Word never fails. And blessed are those who believe that Word. God's greatness is unsearchable. And blessed are those who come to see and praise His name. God's mercy is from generation to generation. And blessed are those who fear Him. And God's faithfulness never fails. And blessed are those who trust Him and believe that salvation has come in Jesus Christ. So won't you trust Him today, friends? That's what this text is saying. Won't you trust God with your life and bank your future on His Word? Both Elizabeth and Mary sing of the greatness of God. And as they sing, they're also calling you and me to join their songs by faith. Won't you trust Him? Giving glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that You are the God who keeps His promises. You are the Mighty One for whom nothing is impossible. We thank You that even in these songs that are so specific to Elizabeth and to Mary, we hear echoes and reminders of our own testimony of faith in Christ. That You have been gracious. That You have been merciful. That Your power, God, has been manifested in the salvation of a people who could not save themselves if they had a thousand lifetimes. So even as we listen to these Saints, sing, Father. We, we know and we anticipate that we can also join with them in praising Your greatness and in using our lives to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.